There are so many conflicting theories that are put about by the critics, the skeptics, the naysayers. Among them are that Jesus actually never died. Among them are Jesus simply swooned. That Jesus' body was actually taken off the cross before He died. And He maybe lived out His life someplace in obscurity. Family of God, the tomb is central to the Easter story. And the tomb is very central to our salvation. Because if these people who attended unto Jesus were all deceived, if those who wrapped ultimately the body of Jesus did so to a live man, then we are definitely still in our trespasses and sins, and definitely we shall perish eternally when we take our last breath. The good news is, He who was once dead, as the book of Revelation says, is indeed alive. Amen? Let's pray. Father, this morning we again just turn our attention to your marvelous record. Lord, your word preserved through the ages that speaks to this event that for some appears to be tragic. But for us, it truly is the source, the beauty of our life eternally. Jesus, you died, conquering death as you rose. And so, Lord, as we turn our attention to this time this morning in your word, we ask you to speak from heaven. Instruct us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have heard in your time of walking with the Lord of those who would say, well, you know the Bible is full of contradictions? How many of you heard? Yeah. You can watch it on TV. You can read it in magazines. The Discovery Channel puts it out all the time. The History Channel does the same thing. There are books written about all the supposed contradictions that are found within the Bible. This passage before us is one of those passages that is often pointed to as a contradiction. Because in all four Gospels, there is a record of the burial of Jesus. And we're going to see this morning, because it's important we take time to look at all four Gospels, we're going to see this morning that three of them almost entirely agree, and one of them is very much different, adding another person and group of people. And it appears when you first read them, it's like, well, who actually was responsible for burying Jesus? Was it, in fact, Joseph of Arimathea? Was it maybe Joseph of Arimathea and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene and some of the ladies? Were they responsible? Or was it, in fact, Nicodemus? Who buried Jesus? Was he really dead? 
question is often asked, and people will say, well, you know, the Gospel of John says one thing, and three of the other Gospels say another. This morning, we'll get to the bottom of all of that as we look first at our passage found here in Luke chapter 23, picking up in verse 50. And now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member. So we're told a little bit about this particular Joseph. A council member at that time would have been a member of the Sanhedrin. So the very same group of people who stood around while Annas and Caiaphas pled their case that Jesus was in fact a a heretic and that he needed to die, that same group of people, this man was actually a member of that group. But he was a good and a just man. And can I draw your attention that sometimes there are crowds of people gathered together, they come up with a conclusion that in their hearts and minds is universally true, and it will be absolutely false, but in that group there will be somebody who will stand for the truth. Somebody who believes what the Word of God says. Somebody who heard the voice of the Lord and is willing to go out on a limb that those things that they know by the Spirit of God they're willing to act on. That was Joseph of Arimathea. He was a man, in spite of the crowd going one way, was not afraid to go the other. He had his issues in life like we all do. Amen? Anybody got issues this morning? I got issues. If you want some issues, I'll give you some of my issues if you don't have enough issues. We, we all have issues. We all have our faults and failures, our foibles, the things that we look at in our lives. We say, man, I, I wish I was stronger in faith. I wish that my life was marked like that person's life is marked, with maybe that work of God that's really visible in them, but almost not visible in you. We all have those things. Joseph had some very strong points about his life. But notice verse 51, For he had not consented to their decision indeed. He says, look, you guys are wrong. And what you're doing, I will be no part of. I'm going to do the right thing, no matter what it costs me. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So we know that Joseph of Arimathea was in fact a Christian. He was a believer. He was a disciple. He was one who knew the truth and he was going to act on the truth. Can I say to you this morning that if you know the truth, you need to act on the truth. It does us no good to know the truth and not act on the truth. The world is full of people who profess to be Christians who do not walk in the truth. They say they believe it, but they don't walk in it. They will not commit to it. They, they refuse, in essence, to live out their faith so that men can see the light of the world in them. We ourselves are not the light in that respect. He will always be the light. But we are now the bearers of the light of Christ. Joseph of Arimathea, at great cost to himself, is going to live out his faith. He believes, and I will tell you this, 
He is the only person in the entire resurrection story to act on that faith at both the crucifixion and the resurrection. He believed that Jesus is going to be resurrected. That is exactly why he hewned out the tomb, and that is exactly why he is going to undertake the burial of Jesus the way he undertakes it. He believed that Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I shall raise it up. He believed it, and he acted on it. Family of God, act on your faith. Be like Joseph of Arimathea. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. A tremendous risk to him. He is a priest. He is a member of the Jewish religious court. He is about to celebrate Passover, and every decision he is going to make said no to the Old Covenant and yes to the New Covenant. He's going to act on who he now is in Christ. And he took it down, and he wrapped it in linen, and he laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of rock, where no one had ever lain before. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how the body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and fragrant oils, and they rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Interesting subtleties here in Luke's Gospel, and I pray I can link them for you this morning so that you'll get the whole picture as to what's going on here. Because it can, at first, look like, what's going on? What's happening? Who did what? How did it happen? The attention to the place of the tomb, unbelievably important. And so if you want to turn there, you can turn to Matthew's Gospel first, to chapter 27. And as we look at this, we want to make sure that we look at all four Gospel accounts, and then we'll see exactly what the Lord is speaking to us this morning. Because there is no contradiction. Every one of the people mentioned in all four Gospels had a hand. And we're going to now see what hand It actually is, because there are some words used here that when we look at it, because you all know the Easter story, when by the time Peter and John have a foot race to the tomb, they look in and they see the grave clothes, the wrappings, all in their place with the head napkin in its own place alone. Amen? That's not what Joseph of Arimathea has done here. Is it a contradiction? No, it's not. Matthew 27, verse 57, And when the evening was come, there was a rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who himself was also Jesus' disciple. You notice the differentiation. It's a very clear statement. He is Jesus' disciple. 
very wealthy man. Arimathea was about 25 miles from Jerusalem. So he was not someone who normally lived in Jerusalem, but he rather ministered in Jerusalem as a member of the Sanhedrin. And so if you know anything about Jewish culture, which you do because I've shared it with you, Jews always preferred to be buried in the city of their birth or the city of their residence. So this tomb that he has had a hand in hewing out could not have actually been his tomb. It wasn't being prepared for him. It was being prepared for a very special dignitary whom he loved. He believed in what the Lord had said. You see, he believed that Jesus was in fact going to be buried and in three days raised up. And he needed a place to be buried. And so Joseph acts on that. The word there, evening, signifies it at sunset. It's near, so it's getting near this high holy day. The 14th of Nisan, the day of the beginning of that high feast of Passover. That also means that this man was a student who was convinced of the truth of what Jesus was teaching. You see, people didn't allow themselves to be called a disciple unless they actually sat under the teaching of that person. That was the meaning then. We are called disciples of Christ because we sat under the teaching of Jesus by the power of his word. Then it was literally someone who sat under the teaching of Jesus. Someone who knew Jesus had been taught by him. And verse 58, it goes on to say, and then he, that would be Joseph of Arimathea, went to Pilate and begged. He didn't just request. He didn't kind of say, well, I kind of sort of like to bury him. He begged for the body of Jesus. That is a correct rendering into the English language. And then Pilate commanded the body to be delivered. You see, this was no casual thing. It wasn't some little side plot, some side plan. And as we remember that Joseph was a Judean, he came from the Judean hills. Pilate was a Gentile. Joseph of Arimathea was a Jew. Do you remember what John's Gospel records? And in fact, as we'll look there in a little bit, when they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the Hall of Judgment, it was still early in the morning, and it even says there, because it was so wrong to be in the presence of a Gentile, that the high priest and the emissaries from the Sanhedrin did not go into Pilate's courtyard. They stood out, we're not going in there. We'll be defiled. Notice the amazing, absolute, completely determined action that is taken by Joseph of Arimathea here. He says, I don't care that I'm defiled. I don't care that this is something that the Jewish law says. I could care less what the Sanhedrin thinks of me. I'm going into the courtyard and I'm going to beg for the body of Jesus. I love him. He's my Savior. Secondarily to that, touching that dead body would have made him ceremonially unclean for a period of seven days so that he could not then participate in Passover. He was at huge risk. Can you imagine what his fellow members of the Sanhedrin would have thought? You're not celebrating Passover? Why not? Because he 
touched the dead body of Jesus. You see, if Jesus had been partially alive, if Jesus had swooned, if Jesus had had some issues, if Jesus had kind of sort of been in a trance, there wouldn't have been any problem with requesting his, his body. And he wouldn't have been ceremonial. There would have been nothing to worry about. And it says there in verse 59 of Matthew 27, And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. And here is where some help from the original language is absolutely necessary to understand what's going on. That couple of words translated clean linen cloth is a single Greek word. It actually comes from the original Aramaic that Jesus and his disciples would have likely spoken. And it is the Greek word sendon. A sendon was not bandages. It was not wrapping. It was actually what we would call a sheet. And so Joseph of Arimathea does not, in fact, actually wrap Jesus' body the way we find in John's Gospel. He takes Jesus' body down very quickly and very hastily because it is sundown on the eve of the Passover. He simply wraps it in a sheet and places it in the tomb. You see, the English fails us here because it actually means rolled up in, not wrapped So as you read that word wrapped, it's actually inaccurate. Not because it isn't similar or close to the same, but because it's a different action and it requires a different piece of fabric than is recorded in John's Gospel. And so he takes that clean linen cloth. It's not a normal grave wrapping. And he simply folds Jesus' body into it. Verse 60 and He, Joseph of Arimathea, laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out. It seems to indicate that this is Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. But in that time, whatever someone owned, just like we say today, uh, that is my house or this is my car, it may not necessarily be your place of residence or your only car. And so it was in this case, the way this language is originally phrased, This is simply a tomb that he actually owned. It was not designed for him. It was actually designed for Jesus. He had paid for it. It was his doing. He began, when Jesus spoke those words earlier in the week, if you destroy this temple in three days, I shall raise it up. He took that very literally. He also knew that where those crucifixions would happen was Golgotha. And when you go today to Jerusalem and you stand in the garden, near the garden tomb, and we're uncertain if that exact tomb is Jesus' tomb, and you'll get all kinds of different stories when you're there. But it likely was in that area, along that cliff face, very soft stone. Golgotha, just around the corner, you can simply walk to the edge of the garden just a few hundred feet away and look up at the place of the skull called Gordon's Calvary. You can see it. It's right there. 
unfortunately, at the top of that is a wall to an Arab part of Jerusalem, right where the cross likely would have stood. And it says in Arabic, God has no son. Jesus is now going to be buried a very short ways away. And that had been hewn in the rock. And there's an interesting, again, grammatical thing that's going on here. And it says, He then rolled a great stone. He, in that day and time, was a figure of speech that was used very commonly when someone was of a higher social status. If you used his name or you used the pronoun he, it would also include anyone traveling with. So he could also mean he and all of his buddies, he and his friends, those who were with him. Much like I would say, use the personal pronoun I, and it can actually mean at times we. It doesn't mean that we're taking credit for it. I was part of that group and we did it together, is the inclination there. And certainly as a wealthy man, he could have had plenty of servants to help him. Verse 61, it goes on to say in Matthew's Gospel, and there was Mary Magdalene. Now, So now it gets more complex. So you have Joseph of Arimathea, who's gone to Pilate's courthouse, which is about probably 300 to 400 yards away, depending on which way you went. So there in the Antonio Fortress, which is on the north edge of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, there the courtyard of Pilate, There was a garrison building there at the time. That was where Pilate held court. So we would have gone there and then simply walked back. It would have taken 10 to 15 minutes on foot. It's not a long distance. We have a tendency to look at these things in our mind and go, well, it's this place and it's that place. These places are all very close to each other. And so it says, and there was Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. That would be Jesus' mom sitting over against the sepulcher. So now you have Joseph of Arimathea and the two Marys sitting against, and the word against, it means something very different than we think. It means on the opposite side of, away from, or in front of, facing in the context that's used here in the original language. They're not just propped up against the door. They're sitting facing it so they can see what's going on. They're actually watching this tomb. They're looking. They're not leaned up against the wall. They're staring at it going, man, what is going to happen now? And so what are they doing? They're watching Joseph of Arimathea. No mention is made that he's anointed this body. No mention is made that he has wrapped Jesus' body. It simply says that he folded Jesus in a cloth and placed him in a tomb. He's not ready to be buried officially that way. That would be against Jewish custom. And so he's now in the tomb. So now we switch to Mark's Gospel. Turn there to Mark chapter 15. Now remember that the Gospel authors are seeing things from their own personal point of view. And they're recording them. And as they record them, of course the most prominent features are likely to be very much the same. This adds to the truth that the Gospels were not forged. 
Because if they were identical, you could say, well, they just talked to each other and wrote down the same thing. But they're not identical. There are little subtleties in each one of these passages that says this is what that man saw. Talk to some of our brothers and sisters that are in law enforcement here in this church. You're going to find out when they interview people, that's one of the ways that they determine what is true. If there's a single story and you've got the crook over here and he's got three buddies and they all tell the same thing, there's a good chance they're lying. (laughs) But if there's little subtleties, then they're probably telling their own point of view. There are subtleties here. Verse 42 of Mark 15, And now when the evening was come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, notice it's slightly different. It informs us that the day that Jesus died was the day before. So now we actually still have three days left before Sunday. The reason that this is important is because there were two back-to-back Sabbaths, one that occurred on Thursday, one that occurred on Friday. So you have a Thursday Sabbath, a Friday Sabbath, then Saturday, then Sunday. So we now have enough days. People are like, well, how do you get three days? That's how you get three days. We think of Sabbath as being Friday at sundown through into Saturday. In this case, there was a Sabbath because it was a high holy day, Passover, that began on Thursday at sundown and occurred to go into Friday. And then another one right on its heels that began at sundown on Friday and went into Saturday. So now we can have three days. If there's only one Sabbath, you can't have three days. It's impossible. Little subtleties. In the year that the Lord died, it didn't that Sabbath, that high holy day in John 19, which we'll look at last, that didn't fall on a regular weekly Sabbath. So they made that high holy day a special Sabbath. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, an honorable counselor. So now again, a little bit different wording. So you're getting the picture that this guy was a man of honor who was in the Sanhedrin, which also waited for the kingdom of God. So again, is emphasizing he was a believer. He went boldly to Pilate and craved or asked for vehemently the body of Jesus. Tells us a little more about Joseph. He's an honorable counselor. He was a man of integrity. You see, as far as the Jews were concerned, the members of the Sanhedrin were not necessarily men of integrity. They were men of wealth, and they were men of power, but not necessarily of integrity. This makes that little tiny differentiation. Verse 44 in Mark 15 goes on to say, And Pilate marveled. He was actually surprised by the question. Why? Because he's a man of integrity, and he's a member of the Sanhedrin. This is a crazy question. Pilate knows enough about Judaism to say, well, what are you asking me for his body for? You're going to be ceremonial. Even Pilate knows he's going to be unclean if he even gets near it. Marveled if he, Jesus, was already dead. You see, Pilate expected Jesus to still be alive. He had not yet heard that he was dead. So there's little, tiny subtleties here. And calling to him the centurion, he asked him whether he had been a while dead. How long has Jesus been dead? How come he didn't tell me? Jesus is dead. 
You see, people normally languished for a very long time on the cross. If they made it to the cross, if they survived the flogging, if they made it out of the courtyard and actually got to the cross, they normally suffered there for a very long time, sometimes days. And yet in a matter of hours, Jesus is dead. You see, the little tiny things begin to give us a picture that this is the words of an eyewitness. Pilate couldn't believe Joseph's word. He was dead. Because the disciples, as verse 50 says, they all forsook him and fled. You see, sometimes when you just read a single gospel account, you don't quite get the whole picture. The disciples booked it. They were gone. And here's a guy who wasn't normally even associated with Jesus, who's doing what you would have thought maybe John and Peter would have done. Now, if I were writing a gospel that had my name on it, and I was, uh, well, frankly, a slackard in, in taking care of Jesus, and John was, amen, wasn't this the guy who laid his head on Jesus' breast? And yet he doesn't have enough guts to go to Pilate and say, hey, can I have the body of my Savior? You see, I wouldn't put that in my Gospels. I would have left that part out. Because I'm pretty sure I wouldn't want people knowing that I kind of blew it when it came to my Savior. Another piece of testimony that adds to the truth of the Gospel accounts. Most people do not self-deprecate in writing. We may do that in, in person, where we can joke and look at each other in the eye and go, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of an idiot. And you'll go, yep, that's true. <laughs> it's personal at that level. But when you're recording something for posterity, you have a tendency to sanitize it. Verse 45, 46, it said, And when he, Pilate, knew it of the centurion, he gave the body to Joseph. And he brought the body in a fine linen. Again, it doesn't say wrappings. In a fine linen. In a sendum. And he took him down and wrapped him. And again, the word is incorrect in English. It literally means to fold into. Like we would fold a blanket. Now, for those of you that are in Boy Scouts, back in the day, in the early day, uh, right after the Korean War, uh, almost every Boy Scout in America had a couple of things that were in their pack. And we used to carry those silly, heavy wool blankets, military surplus, left over from the Korean War. Those nice, wonderful green things that if you actually put them on bare skin, your flesh would come off. <laughs> and you learn how to actually make a sleeping bag by folding one inside of the other with alternating folds. And so you could then open it up and slide yourself in. The word that's used here in the Greek language means to fold unto. Very similar thing. You put somebody in it, you would make opposing folds so that they were inside of this piece of linen. But it was not grave clothes. It was not wrapping. It was not spices. It did not have the marks of a Jewish burial. And yet you have a member of the Sanhedrin doing it. Makes no sense at all unless there's something else afoot. 
Joseph had already purchased for this person a very special. And remember then that a, even a linen sheet would have been tremendously expensive. You know, we think about going down to, you know, Anna's linens in Redlands, right? And for twenty-seven ninety-five, you can get 413 pillowcases. You know, it's, that's the way it is. You go to Costco and you can get the 10-pack of towels for 12 bucks or whatever. Or like 10, thing, 10 pairs of socks for $9. We think in those terms. But then a singular piece of linen would have been hand-woven. There were no machines. Unbelievably valuable. Normally would have made, rather from cotton, from flax. And so that flax would have to be processed into a fabric and then woven. This would have been more than the average person could have ever possibly had. So this is a wealthy man. Verse 46 there in Mark's Gospel tells us that Joseph took that body and he folded it, rolled him up in. You've probably done that. If, if, you, if, you have, if you're here, you're a male and you have a brother. We, we did this to our, our siblings, didn't we? We put him in a blanket and then we rolled him up kind of like a burrito. Just kind of, That's the picture. Basically, he's rolling or folding Jesus' body, but he's not preparing him for burial. It's important you stay with me because if you get this, you're going to get the whole picture. Mark 15:47, and then Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, beheld where he laid. See, now you're starting to get the picture. They're not actually sitting against the tomb. They're, they're sitting back in an area in the garden someplace. And if you go there today, that is a multi-tiered garden. There are all kinds of different levels to it. There's actually an old wine press that's in the middle of the garden where the garden tomb is. They could have been anywhere in there. Lots of very old olive trees. Many of them could have been at least the rootstocks at that time in that garden. And so if you go, there are places that you could be and not next to the tomb, but visibly see the tomb very clearly. That's the picture. There's no mention, notice, of Nicodemus yet. Mark 15 will again state that the women beheld where Jesus laid. Now if you turn to our gospel passage, back to Luke 23, and it says there was a good man, behold, named Joseph. He was just. And it means good in the sense not that he was perfect, It means that he was worthy to be admired, worthy to be looked up to. He was a man of character, a man of integrity. But there's some more personal information that we didn't get from Matthew and Mark. Not only was he a member of the Sanhedrin, but he actually stood against them. You see, no one could know that he is good unless he had done good. That's like when somebody tells you, yeah, I'm really good at something. You, you, when you go to your doctor's office, he says, yes, I'm a great brain surgeon. You want to actually know he's performed surgery, right? Not that he went on YouTube and or, you know, Googled brain surgery and I'm a good brain surgeon. Back then it was even more important because we didn't have those kind of records. So when a man's integrity was deemed to be good, it was because other people witnessed them being good. Their character was clear. This man's character was clear. People understood that Joseph of Arimathea stood in the group with the Sanhedrin and said, I am not consenting to this. I will have no part in this. 
I can't out, outvote you. I can't keep you from doing what you're going to do. But leave me out of it. And so his integrity was intact even though he had been at Jesus' trial. He hadn't consented to the violent treatment of Jesus. He loved Jesus. He worshipped the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so what it really says here is he went to Pilate and begged. He said, give me a don't let his body stay on the cross. That's why he's begging. As I shared with you, when someone was crucified during that time, they could last for a very long time. And if they were in a hurry to execute more people, then they would break the legs. So that tells us, because they did not break Jesus' legs, that he was already dead. That was the reason for the spear in the side. It was to just make sure that they're gone. And so what we now have is a man who knows Jesus is dead, but believes with all his heart that Jesus is going to be alive. That's why he's begging for the body. Because if I leave him there, then they're going to let the wild animals feast on Jesus. They may well have done what they did with criminals at that time, was they ripped their body off of the cross, pulled the nails right through the wounds, threw them on the ground, and then they dragged them with usually a donkey down across outside of the city wall and heaped them into the trash pile that was the Hinnom Valley, which burned with everlasting smoke. It was the city garbage dump. That's what they often did with criminals. If they didn't end up in the dump, they would end up in a mass grave with the rest of the criminals. They were horribly treated. The bodies were abused. And so he says, because I love him and because I know he's going to be raised, I'm going to go beg for the body of Jesus. Again, using the word senden. Wrapped, rolled, folded, but not the way that we see in John's Gospel. And so these Gospels concur on the basic facts. And then what happens next is interesting. So as you turn to John's Gospel, chapter 19, we'll wrap this up this morning. And here's where it gets really fun. And I don't mean fun in the sense that the crucifixion was fun, but in it starts to come together for us. Verse 38, and after this... Why do you suppose it says that? Because it's referring to the events that have already occurred. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea has gone and pleaded for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, believing Jesus would be raised from the dead, has hewn out a tomb not very far from Golgotha. He has gotten the body of Jesus and hastily, believing no need to wrap him because he ain't staying in there, folded him up in a blanket, put him in the tomb. And after this, because his side has been pierced, but he didn't break his legs, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, secretly, for fear of the Jews, noticed the further details. The word secretly, again, is a poor translation into English from the original language. It should say hidden, but that doesn't read well in English. And so secretly, we would now use the word which we've just recently invented, 
the word stealth. Stealthily has attended unto the body of Jesus because of the Jews and besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him leave and he therefore came and took the body of Jesus. You see, what he's really doing is being quite wise. Because don't think for a moment that the Sanhedrin would have loved to have seen Jesus' body drugged by a donkey over to the dump at Hinnom and rolled into the canyon. They would have loved it. And if anyone had known what Joseph of Arimathea was going to be up to, they would have stopped him. They would have been on him like all day and all night. They would have been, wherever he goes, somebody follow him. Because he's got this plot to make sure that that body gets in that tomb. So he is hidden from the Jews. He's not hiding from the Jews. He's actually being very wise and very bold. I don't think he was ever afraid of what would happen to him eventually because he went and did it. And he was the one that did do it. Undoubtedly, they would have been, you know, there would have been whisperings of what was going on. Notice verse 39 now. And now notice a new guy. So up to now, it looks like Joseph of Arimathea hastily grabbed Jesus, threw him in the tomb, put the rock over the door, and done. But that's not what John records. And there came also Nicodemus, which at first came to Jesus by night. Remember what happened? He came to him. He was afraid. He didn't want to be hanging around this Galilean dude. And so he came to Jesus by night. And it was he who brought the mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds in weight. See, now we're starting to see a traditional Jewish burial. He goes on to say, these other accounts don't tell of Nicodemus. So now we have Joseph of Arimathea. He's come. He's actually buried Jesus the first time. Now Nicodemus is coming. The ladies have been watching. Notice how this all ties together now. He's in that one. And then they, Nicodemus and his servants, took the body of Jesus and wound it. Now they use another word for what they're going to do to Jesus' body. At first they wrapped him, they folded him, they rolled him in the linen shroud. That is why it is a possibility that the Shroud of Turin is legit. People complain about the Shroud of Turin because it's not the right shape. It's not long bandages. If you know your Bible, he was actually laid in a shroud first. Now Nicodemus is going to take him out of that shroud. And he's going to carefully prepare his body. And he wound it in linen cloths, with the spices, as is the manner of Jews to bury him. Nicodemus now completes the burial process. You see, Nicodemus did not quite have enough faith yet to believe that Jesus was going to be raised from the dead. Joseph of Arimathea did, so he hastily puts him inside the tomb. Nicodemus says, hey, we can't leave him like that. It's not okay. And so he comes and completes now what was going on. They could not have worked together, by the way, because now those bandages, those wrappings, the O-theon, 
not the sendon, but the otheon, which does mean bandages or wrappings, is now applied to Jesus' body. John 20 will go on to say that Peter and John raced to the tomb. The ladies beat him there. Remember, they were hanging out the whole time. They saw where Jesus was buried. They raced to the tomb, and when they look in, what do they see? They don't see ascending. Do you know why? Because Nicodemus unwrapped Jesus, took him out of the ascending, and then began to wrap him in the Otheon, covered him completely with that hundred pounds of spices, and put him back in the tomb. Jesus was buried twice. The first time by Joseph of Arimathea believing that he was going to be raised from the dead. The second time by Jesus, assisted by his, or the second time by Nicodemus, assisted by Mary, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, the ladies, and the assistants of Nicodemus. They actually wrap him in unbelief. That's why they're all surprised come Easter morning. Because they witnessed Joseph of Arimathea put him in there and said, Hey, that's not right. We can't leave him like that. I mean, after all, he's dead. Boy, were they in for a shock on Easter morning. So when you put all these things together, this incredible contrast, some people say, Well, what difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. Because you have Joseph of Arimathea as the only guy who believed before Jesus was killed that he was going to be killed, but he was going to be raised. You have everybody else doing exactly what the gospel says. They fled. They went away. They were in disbelief. They were weeping at the tomb. I think Joseph of Arimathea was waiting someplace in the bushes, staring at the tomb. Okay, it's almost time. That's why he had the new tomb hewn out. That's why he hastily wrapped him. That's why he didn't care if he was ceremonially unclean, because he believed the new covenant was in force. Jesus was going to be raised. And that's what we're going to celebrate as we get to next week, which is Palm Sunday and then Good Friday and Easter Sunday. It's that glorious appearing of our great God and King right out of that tomb into new life. Amen? Amen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you this morning for this time. and Lord, what an amazing plan. And so, Lord, we just uh, lift this up to you and uh, we pray that you just help us to be excited about what this coming season represents to us, Lord. Jesus, if that tomb still has your bones in it, we're all in trouble. Lord, if you never made it to that tomb, we're in trouble. But the fact of the matter is, Joseph of Arimathea believed that you would be raised again. And with his very actions, he said, I I believe. May we believe as well, Lord. Help us this day to understand, to know what is your good, your perfect will for us as we live out our lives. Lord, may we be that bold in our witness to do what is your will and your good pleasure. We love you. We thank you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Oh, amen.